You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 5, 3 through 6. Let me read God's word for us. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. What is the most offensive claim of Christianity to our world today? That might be an interesting question to ask your coworker this week. Good conversation starter about spiritual matters. Your coworker, your neighbor, what would they say? What sort of responses would you expect to hear? If you ask the man on the street, what's most offensive to you about the Christian faith? What would you expect to hear? How would you answer that question yourself this morning? Perhaps it would be Christianity's claim that every human being is a sinner, a sinner before God, that every one of us has fallen short of his holy standard. Maybe it's the doctrine of hell that God in his holiness would pour out his righteous wrath upon the wicked for eternity. Maybe it's the doctrine of atonement, that God would crush his own son as a substitute to absolve us of the condemnation of our sins. Or maybe what's most offensive is the Christian teaching on marriage as a covenant designed between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Or perhaps it's the the teaching that we hold to a biblical definition of gender that corresponds to our biology, male and female. Or maybe it's the church's teaching about sex, that while being a gift of God to be enjoyed is only to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. Which one would you say is the most offensive to our world today. And let me ask you a question, a question, especially if you don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, what, which of those is most offensive to you? The one that seems to almost cause this visceral gut reaction of, I don't like that. As God would have it, our passage today from Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, touches upon all those issues that I just mentioned, particularly in calling the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to holiness concerning our sexuality. We are gathered here this morning to worship the Lord who has so graciously spoken to us by his word. 
And we need the word of God, don't we? We need it. If we're going to understand who he is, who we are, what God expects of us. So as we discuss the matter of sexual ethics, as God has revealed to us by his word, we have to remind ourselves that God has commanded this in scripture and he's commanded it for his church and he's empowered his church by his spirit to practice it. And so we must humbly go to the scriptures this morning. I invite you to consider God's word, what God's word might say to our culture, yes, but more specifically and most importantly, what God might say to you and to your life this morning. And I urge you, don't disregard this text because of its offensiveness to our culture today. Because while it does give a firm warning, it contains the good news about God's provision of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we work through this text this morning, we will do so in two parts. First, we will see and consider the command that Paul gives us here as Paul lays out the Christian sexual ethic for the church. And then in verses three and four, we will consider the warning, the warning that Paul cautions the church from committing these sins, because these are the sorts of sins that incite the wrath of God against the sons of disobedience. So the command and the warning. Let's first consider the command, the command. As we make our start and make our way into chapter 5 of Ephesians, it's important to remember that chapter 5 is, the, is building upon everything that Paul has said for these first four chapters. And it's important to remember that Paul's charge, his intensity, and in calling for the church to live a holy life in Christ Jesus, all of this is the result of God's saving work of redemption that Jesus has taken us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were, uh, uh, who were allies and participants of sins with the sons of disobedience, and now Jesus has made us alive. He's made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so through his application of the gospel, beginning in chapter 4, Paul is wanting us to make the connection between our new identity in Jesus as God's children, saved by grace through faith, and the practical implications of what it means to live as God's child. And Paul is clear, we don't walk any longer like the Gentiles, who in their futility of mind, but we learned Christ, Paul said. And so we put off the old self, and we walk in the new manner of life that Christ has given us. So Paul transitions into this Christian calling to holiness in chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, which we looked at last week, where Paul urges us to be imitators of God and to walk in love. But verse 3 makes a contrast with those first two verses. He contrasts walking in love with sexual immorality. Look at how he puts it in verse 3. But, right, see the contrast? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Isn't this fascinating? That what our culture considers illicit sexual love as the preeminent expression of love, Paul considers sexual immorality to actually be the opposite of what it means to walk in love. And so in laying out before the church God's holy call upon their sexuality, he uses three terms to define a set of sins that are not proper among the saints. And these three terms are going to be repeated in verse 5. And so we have to define them carefully and understand what Paul means by these terms. 
The first term is pornea, sexual immorality, as it's translated in the ESV. And this is the word, as you can hear, that we derive our word for pornography. It's translated in the text here as sexual immorality. And in the New Testament, this word refers to all sorts of morally objectionable sexual acts. Fornication, having sex with someone who is not your spouse, homosexuality, prostitution, or any other form of illicit sex outside the bounds of marriage. The second term here for impurity is often used in conjunction with pornea in the Greek New Testament, and it refers to impurity or uncleanness. It was a term frequently used in connection with sexual sins, and in conjunction with pornea here in the text, it's a term that refers to sexual behaviors that defile us before God and make us unclean in his presence. And then the third term that Paul mentions is is greedy or covetousness. The third term uh, focuses on this excessive desire for acquisition, a sort of lust for more, if you will. Paul connects the term to idolatry in verse 5. And so Paul may hear with the word greed or covetousness, he might be referring just to pagan worship practices or some sort of consumeristic greed But in the context, particularly as Paul's emphasizing so strongly sexual immorality, perhaps Paul is taking the word covetousness and he's leaning into the prohibition of the Ten Commandments. Specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So if he uses these three terms, all referring to sinful sex and sinful sexual desire, then Paul is warning here of greed, this insatiable craving for sexual pleasure from whomever and whenever possible. So these three words kind of form a cocktail of sexual sins and practices that Paul says are not proper among saints. You see, it shows the wisdom of God to warn against sexual immorality in this way because Paul doesn't list a sort of long list of specific sexual sins, but Paul lays out for us a sort of any behavior, any desire that is not in keeping with God's original desire for our sexuality. So the notion that we characterize today as some sexual behaviors as sin, that bothers our modern sensibilities and the way our world thinks about sex. That the same behaviors that Paul forbids are the behaviors that American culture celebrates today. We've tossed out the very category of pornea, haven't we? There's no such thing as sexual immorality anymore in the American Republic. We embrace sexual freedom. That's the new ethic. But you may be surprised to realize, church, that the sexual ethic that Paul calls forth here in the book of Ephesians, it was just as countercultural in Paul's day as it was, as it is to our own day. Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was the home of the great temple of Artemis. The whole city was dominated by the cult of Artemis. Artemis was the Roman goddess of the hunt and fertility. And it was her association with fertility that the Ephesians had this tendency to latch onto in their worship. And so the festivals that engulfed the whole city of Ephesus were filled with eroticism, cultic prostitution, all sorts of pornea, sexual immorality. So the Ephesians lived in a world, the Ephesian church did, they lived in a city where 
sexual immorality was normalized, celebrated, and politicized. The temple of Artemis and her worship as a member of the city of Ephesians, it was essential if you were going to be a good city citizen of Ephesus. It was foundational to the very economy of the whole city that the city celebrates the worship of Artemis in this way. So when Paul first showed up to preach the gospel in Ephesians, if you remember from the book of Acts, the gospel starts going forth, the whole economy starts to get turned on its head. So much so that Demetrius, the idol maker, the silversmith, leads a riot in the city and the people begin chanting and protest against Paul and his gospel saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, this sexual immorality was laced with a, a charge of political uproar. So as Paul calls the Ephesian church to the sexual ethic that is given by God, that is fitting for the redeemed people of God, Paul calls Christians to this countercultural lifestyle and even to social alienation by not participating in the decadent carnal pleasures associated with the worship of Artemis. And how remarkably similar is our world today to that of the first century? The Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer was prophetic in a lot of ways when he described in the 1970s and the 1980s how the Western world was being inverted the Western world was returning back to the paganism of the Roman Empire. As the West began to abandon the Christian worldview that has shaped our understanding of ethics, morality, liberty, and government. So since Emperor Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, the Christian worldview since then, and for the most part, restrained human, humanity's propensity to sexual licentiousness. Christendom had a lot of problems, had many problems, which we Baptists will gladly lament and decry as the champions of religious liberty. But Christendom wasn't all bad, wasn't all bad. What, what it did is it brought to the Western world, it brought the Western world out of the pagan hedonism of sexual perversions, and it provided a biblical vision for the world for marriage, family, and sexuality. So while the Christian worldview that dominated the West for so many years didn't do away with sexual sin, sexual abuse, adultery, prostitution, all of that continued to exist as sinners continue to exist. But it did make such behaviors taboo and even shameful. And it did elevate for all of society the importance of marriage and family and children for human flourishing. But the cohesion of the Christian worldview in the West has eroded the last few centuries, and it's only accelerated the last few decades. The Enlightenment and modernity, with its skepticism, it chipped away at the Christian foundation of the West. And so the consequences of the Enlightenment have left our society now built without a foundation. We have stripped away the foundation that gave any sort of sense of objective truth, and instead we've replaced it with this sort of wobbly jello of hyper-individualism and subjectivism. And so is it any wonder then that we feel, no matter what side of the aisle you might be on the political front, we all feel that Western civilization seems to be teetering on collapse. There's nothing that holds us together anymore. So when it comes to sexuality, the pent-up pressure of this worldview revolution exploded on the scenes in the youth culture of the 60s and 70s with the sexual revolution and with its free love movement. 
So the sexual revolution that most of us have experienced within our own lifetimes has been the most rapid shift in moral norms in the history of the world. What was once rejected has become normalized. And what is now normalized is demanding to be celebrated by all. And so over the last few decades, we've seen the speedy results of this revolution and the consequences it has wrought. Increased adultery, no-fault divorce, teenage pregnancy, the spread and proliferation of pornography, the LGBTQ plus movement, hookup apps like Tinder, sexting, and so much more. So while America may not have a temple of Artemis, Americans, like the Ephesians, worshiped at the altar of unrestrained sexual desire, and we give our bodies in sacrifice to our lusts. So the church today finds ourselves in this generation. This is the generation that the Lord has placed us in. And we find ourselves today striving for holiness in a modern-day Ephesus that not only rejects the Christian sexual ethic, but now claims that the Christian sexual ethic is actually harmful and oppressive. Many would argue today, if you ask someone on the street, many would tell you that what's immoral isn't free sex, but the Bible's teaching on sex. That's what's immoral. That's what the culture claims. And what a shocking turn of events this has been. What Paul calls sexual immorality, our world has now championed as a virtuous new morality. What Paul calls impurity, the world calls authenticity. And what Paul calls covetousness, the world calls self-expression. We live in an age where virtues have become vices, and vices have become virtues. The prophet Isaiah warned us of these days, didn't he? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so in our sin, we have flipped the morality of God's created order on its head. But church, here's what you need to remind ourselves of, is that God's standard for our sexual conduct isn't harmful or oppressive. It's just the opposite. In fact, we shouldn't apologize for the goodness and wisdom of God's word on these matters. And so because the cultural pressure feels so heavy and unrelenting, I think we who hold to the Bible's teaching concerning sexuality, we can sometimes feel a little bit pushed on our heels, forced to defend what was once self-evident and affirmed throughout all of society. So we hear the words rebuke. Why won't the church get in line with the sexual revolution? And we feel that pressure, feel that attack. And so we start to bumble over our words and we kind of downplay what the Bible says. And we feel this almost embarrassment that we hold to what the Bible says concerning our sexuality. But we shouldn't feel that way. God's commands are not harmful. They're not petty. He's not being vindictive. God commands the restraining of our sexual desire, not because he seeks to rob us of pleasure, but because he wants us to have true pleasure in him. And God is protecting us by his grace from the consequences that come from sexual sin. God knows that we will flourish as a people and as a society if we embrace his gift of sex in the way that he has designed it. Sexual sin not only harms others, but sexual sin harms yourself. This is exactly what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, where Paul tells the church of Corinth, flee 
from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So we have to remind ourselves, church, that sexual pleasure is a gift. It's a good thing to be enjoyed in the way God has designed. But sexual pleasure is but a drop in the ocean of pleasure available to Christ's church. So church, do not begrudgingly embrace God's call for holiness in terms of your sexuality, but see it then as an exercise of his fatherly wisdom and care for you and strive to obey God's command for your sexuality. And as we do so, we will find that our heart increases in joy as we seek ultimate pleasure in the Lord, not our flesh. You see, we find our joy in God, and so we replace the inferior for the superior, the shadow for the substance, the sensual for the spiritual, the temporary for the eternal. So the Christian call to holiness, Paul makes, this connection, as he so often does, to our new identity in Christ. Paul is not only laying down for us God's expectations for our sexuality, but he's calling us to live as saints according to God's standard. Look at what he says repeatedly, right? He says here, but sexual morality, all impurity or covenants must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This is who we are now. We are God's holy ones. And so the call to holiness is connected to our identity as God's children, And so by God's grace, God has adopted us into his family. He's redeemed sinners like us, and he has turned us into his saints. We were not holy, but by God's grace, God has made us holy through the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. So now that we are united by faith to Jesus, we are holy as he is holy. In Jesus, we are cloaked with the purity of Jesus' holiness. So the point that Paul is stressing here is an absurdity that he senses in his own soul. There's this absurdity to the notion that God's holy people redeemed in Christ could participate in this former sexual immorality like their former pagan life. Paul says those two things don't go together. If you're a saint This is the way saints live, holy in Christ Jesus. Why would you go back to living like a pagan? Beloved, we are God's people now. That's the point Paul is stressing. So let us then live in the new life that God has given us, fleeing from sexual immorality. Many walk in a manner worthy by honoring the Lord with our sexuality. That's what we strive to do. In our sexual sin, as Christians, we obscure the holiness of God that we are called to bear witness to with our lives. And the standard that Paul sets here is a high standard, isn't it? Look at what the text says again. But sexual morality, all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. While Christians live and engage in the world for the sake of the gospel, we must be marked as distinct from the world. Paul emphasizes that sexual sin should not only not be done, but it shouldn't even be named among God's people. It has no place within the church. The church should be marked as holy in terms of its sexual conduct. And by rejecting the immorality of the world, we are to live in a countercultural way, setting ourselves as distinct and as the people of God. Now, this doesn't mean we go about living with this sort of holier-than-thou attitude marked by arrogance. No, it's actually just the opposite. 
as we live out the Bible's command for our sexual ethic, we communicate God's power in our redemption to the world. We testify that that it is by God's grace that he saved us out of our sexual sin, and it is by now the indwelling spirit of God that we can even live a pure and holy life in Christ Jesus. And so the call to holiness, Paul says, not only extends to our bodies, it extends to our mouths. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Dirty jokes and sexually charged language should not come out of the mouth of a Christian. Locker room talk, crude language, sexual innuendos, these are to be forbidden from our tongues. Even laughing at such humor gives tacit approval of the sin. The world has made the goodness of God's gift of sex, and it's turned it into a joke from stand-up comedians to television sitcoms. Now, every Christian has to seek the, the will of the Lord and follow their conscience in terms of their habits of media consumption. But we have to admit that American entertainment has become so sexually charged and so mocking of God in this way, both in its content and its humor, that we have to carefully assess our viewing habits to ensure that we are living distinctly and holy in the world. Paul isn't forbidding Christians here to even speak in terms of matters of sexuality. That was the case. I violated that like 15 minutes ago, right? So Paul's not advocating here this sort of quiet, prudish sense of, oh, we just don't talk about sex or sexuality. Instead, what Paul is urging us to do is that Christians should regularly speak with one another about the issue of sex We should confess our struggles with sexual sin, and we should find other brothers and sisters who can help hold us accountable. And so Paul is commanding us here not to be entertained, entertained by conversations that make a mockery of God and his world. For Christians to engage in such talk, such crude talk like this, Paul says it's out of place, out of place. Now that we are in Christ, participating in these crude jokes and speech, it's out of place for a Christian. (coughs) Now, in our society, we change our dress and conduct based on the setting. I have a feeling you changed clothes before you came here this morning into more proper and fitting attire, right? We do this. While in the comfort of your own home, last night, you're lounging, you're in your pajamas, You've got your feet propped up on the coffee table. You're shoveling popcorn into your mouth, right? You're littering crumbs all over your, all over your garments, right? This, that's your proper attire at home, if you will. But the expectation for proper decorum increases the nobler the setting. So the appropriate conduct and attire at McDonald's is different than Olive Garden. In Olive Garden, the attire there is different than if you were dining with the Queen of England at Buckingham Palace. That's a similar point that Paul is making here. Sexually charged and crude speech is out of place for the Christian. Why? It's out of place. Well, do you remember where the Christian is? Do you remember where Paul orients the Christian life? Look at Ephesians 2 verse 6. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him, where? In the heavenly places. Our union with Christ 
and being seated with Jesus now in the heavenly place, we must conduct ourselves with the decorum of heaven. So if we are seated with Jesus, then we wouldn't tell a raunchy joke when we're dining with the Queen of England, how much more inappropriate it would be to make such a joke with one seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So what's the alternative to crude talk? Well, Paul tells us it's not silence, but thanksgiving. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. This is the appropriate response we should have to God's gift of sexuality. Here we see how Christians should rightly think and talk about sex. We do so with thanksgiving. We thank God for the gift of sex, and which God has designed to be pleasurable for married couples as a bond of their covenant union, as an act of kindness to us. And so it is a gift to be enjoyed within that intimate bond of the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. And so we should thank God. We should thank God for our bodies. We should thank God for our sexuality. We should thank, the, thank God for the gift of sex as we enjoy it in his good world as he's designed it. And in thankfulness, we use God's gift in the way he designed it, conducting ourselves as proper among the saints for the glory of the God who saved us. So there we see the command, the conduct for the Christian in terms of our sexuality. But second point this morning is the warning, God's wrath against sinners that Paul turns to in verses five and six. So to help us see the seriousness of his command, the seriousness of this charge upon God's people, Paul gives further warnings about the danger of sexual sin. Now his words are truthful, but they are sharp. It's a word that is offensive to our world today, but it is one that we need to hear. Look at what he says in verse 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul isn't singling out sexual sin as the only sin that brings the wrath of God. Any sin does that. Any sin warrants God's righteous condemnation. Nor is Paul singling out sexual sin as worse categorically than any other sin. So why does Paul give such a firm warning here about sexual immorality? Why does he do it with such great force? I think there might be a few reasons. I think one of the reasons might be is that the Ephesians lived in a context where sexual immorality was normalized and celebrated. And so perhaps he gives the Ephesians this strong warning because this particular group of people were very tempted to go back to their old sexual practices, to go back to their old way of life, to engage in sexual immorality. And so Paul, as an act of love, warns them and reminds them that engaging in sexual sin like they used to, returning to those behaviors is the same sort of behaviors that earned them the wrath of God in the first place before Christ. But secondly, sexual sin is one of the most common pernicious and consequential of sins, isn't it? I think that's another reason why Paul gives it with such seriousness here. Sexual immorality breaks up families. It abuses others. It subverts God's design for marriage and family. It can lead to countless other sins, like lying and hate and 
murder and abortion. So because our desire for sex is connected to our biology, I think it's easy for us to rationalize our sexual sin and to think of it simply as a carnal impulse or need, like wanting water or wanting food. We have to remind ourselves that sin perverts and distorts our desires. It perverts and distorts the good gift of sexual desire, and it turns it into this animalistic impulse. Not all are tempted to murder, but I think what Paul recognizes, and I think what we recognize intuitively, is that most human beings are tempted to sexual sin at some point in their life in some capacity. Because it is a common struggle, and because it's a struggle that's so consequential if we engage in it, I think Paul gives a firm warning in the text as a caution. I think there's a third reason perhaps he gives it so strongly, and that's honoring God with our sexuality is perhaps one of the most visible ways that we make ourselves distinct from the world. While many sins can ruin our Christian witness, few sins ruin Christian witness like sexual sin. You may struggle with anger, you might struggle with gluttony or a lying tongue, but when a man commits adultery or commits sexual abuse, It stains the church's reputation in a way few other sins do. So whatever his reason here for stressing the severity of sexual sin, we shouldn't seek to explain away the warning, nor seek to soften it. Paul points to this sobering reality that those who engage consistently and unrepentantly in sexual sin have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, does this mean sexual sin is unforgivable sin? Certainly not, not at all. In in a moment of weakness, even a Christian can commit sexual sin. But a true Christian is one who repents of sin. Paul has in mind here, not a weak Christian who stumbles into sexual sin, but he has in mind a person who claims the name of Christ and who lives unrepentantly and sexual sin as a lifestyle. It's not as if those who choose to live unrepentant sexual sin, it's not as if Paul says they lose their salvation, but by their ongoing disobedience, they reveal that they do not have the spirit of God who has been given to the saints to convict them of their sin and to lead them into repentance and holiness. Do you remember what Paul says at the start of the letter to the Ephesians about the, the Christian's inheritance in the first place? What is the inheritance? Well, God blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Look at chapter one, verse 11. If you want to flip over there, Paul says in him, we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that inheritance, how does it come? How does it apply to us? How do we receive it through the great work of redemption in Jesus Christ? Well, we hear the gospel. Look at chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Paul tells us as we hear the gospel, we believe in Jesus. He says, we were seated with the, uh, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So this is Paul's point that he's building upon here, even in Ephesians chapter five, is that by continuing to live in sexual sin without repentance, whether you're living with your girlfriend or whether you're sleeping with a married man or whether you're addicted to pornography or whether you're in a same-sex relationship, by living in that way unrepentantly, you indicate that you do not have an inheritance in heaven because you do not have the Spirit of God who convicts you of your sin and who leads you to repentance. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
And anyone who lives in an ongoing pattern of sin without repentance sadly indicates that he is void of the spirit of God. You may think that you are a Christian. You might claim that you are a Christian, but by your continued disobedience to God, you prove that you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. The apostle John makes the same point in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Church, do not ignore the warning that Paul gives us. Let no one deceive you with empty words. This sexual licentiousness promoted and propagated by our culture is a satanic lie. Sexual liberation is not the pathway to happiness. It won't satisfy the longings of your soul. Be warned, if you abandon Jesus and embrace what God calls sin, you will share in the wrath of God that will come upon the sons of disobedience. I say that not to scare you, but to lovingly warn you, to warn you. Our culture actively promotes sexual sin as a way to freedom and authenticity. But it's a snare that the enemy has laid is entrapping many. You are being bombarded, bombarded throughout the week with unrelenting lies filled with empty words, just like Paul talks about. Do not be deceived by them. The truth is in God's word. God created sex and he tells us how to use it rightly and to enjoy it properly for his glory. And so church, make sure, make sure that you're thinking about sexuality as being shaped by the scriptures, not by the media you consume. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided his own son so that we can be spared from the wrath of God. That's the good news of the gospel, that every one of us in this room by nature deserve God's wrath, whether you struggle with sexual sin or not. All have sinned against God and all of us deserve eternal death. But praise be to God that he has provided a savior for the children of wrath. He has sent us his beloved son, Jesus who lived among men for 33 years without sexual sin as a single man. He lived in perfect righteousness and holiness. He taught and proclaimed the truth of God's kingdom. And in love, Jesus has come to rescue sexual sinners from their bondage and chains and truly liberate them with God's forgiveness and justification. By God's grace, Christ takes on the wrath of God in our place so that all who might look to Jesus with repentance and faith would be delivered from God's wrath and made righteous before God. Paul's point here in calling back the sons of disobedience, you recognize that phrase? It's taken straight from Ephesians chapter two. By Jesus, we are no longer a part of the sons of disobedience. We have been made alive out of the deadness of our sin. And the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. If you are in Christ, that is not who you are anymore. You can be saved out of your sexual sin. You can live a new life in Christ. That's what I, I love about the scriptures because Paul's writing to a bunch of sexual sinners 
in the book of Ephesians, the book of the Corinthians. These were Gentile pagans who engaged so promiscuously in every sinful desire that they had. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because Paul highlights that. You're welcome to turn there if you like, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. I find great comfort in these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. It's a warning, but I find it a comforting one. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh Uh-oh. I think all of us just were condemned by that list. And then Paul goes on and says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. You see, before Jesus, many of us were enslaved to our sexual desires and it led to rampant sexual immorality. But God in his great mercy, he saved you out of the filth of your sin. And he has dealt definitively definitively with your guilt and shame once and for all as Christ took on the wrath you deserved upon the cross. The blood of Jesus washed over you You were given the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and you were justified in the perfect righteousness of the Holy Son of God. So praise God that he redeems sexual sinners like us and that he transforms us into the likeness of his holiness and righteousness. So in response to God's word today, I want to make a series of applications and admonishments to you. First, to those who balk at the Christian teaching on sex. Why do you do so? Is the sexual ethic of the world any better? As people use each other's bodies for carnal enjoyment? Is the free love movement really loving when it's nothing more than just greedily craving another person's body for your own selfish and personal use? Has treating human persons as sexual objects in this society made the world a better place? Consider the wisdom of God this morning, how the Christian sexual ethic corresponds to the pattern of natural order that God has laid down in creation. See how it exemplifies the true source of love. It's not walking in promiscuous sex, but walking in love, following in the pattern of God himself. You may still be hesitant or even offended by what I've said today from the book of Ephesians, but can I invite you to keep reading God's word? And will you compare the definition of love, freedom, and pleasure with what the Bible actually says about those words? To those of you who are lost and caught up even now in sexual sin, do you see your danger? Be deceived no longer and repent as you have heard the truth of God's word today. Your conscience cries out to you perhaps even now about the hollowness of empty sexual encounters. Your sin has left a wound upon your soul. And friends, let me invite you to come to Jesus. He will gladly receive you. He will gladly receive you. He will never cast you out if you come to him mourning over your sin. So turn from your sin this day. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And in him, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed from every impurity. So come to Jesus. 
and experience a love and joy in God that far surpasses the fleeting pleasures of sexual sin. To Christian singles, are you honoring the Lord with your body? God has called you in this season to abstain from sex while you're single. So guard your heart against lust and do not be duped by the world who tells you that you need to have sex to be happier human. It's not true. True happiness isn't found in sex, but it's found in God. So therefore flee sexual immorality and live counterculturally, holy and distinct unto the Lord Jesus. To married Christians, are you enjoying and protecting God's gift of sex with thanksgiving? Guard your heart, married friends, against lust, which can defile your marriage and your conscience. Are you enjoying the gift of sex regularly as a married couple, receiving it from the Lord with thanksgiving? Flee from the temptation that you will find to look, look lustfully at another. Cast aside every thought of adultery, not just an act, but in temptation and lust. Showcase the holiness of God and the joy of Christ in the church through your marriage. And to Christians who are currently now succumbing to sexual sin, I implore you, repent, repent, be warned, be warned that a lack of repentance indicates that you may have an unregenerate heart. So bring the darkness of your sin to light. Grab an elder after church, grab another brother or sister in this body that's mature, that loves you and confess your sin. Confess your sin. Ask for help. That's why we're here. We're all struggling with sin. We need each other's help. We're going to live holy and distinct lives in Christ Jesus. So ask for help. Ask for discipleship. Ask for accountability. And set your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his glorious beauty, he is the one who must captivate your wayward heart. And to Redemption Church corporately together, may we live out our church covenant together as we have committed to seek divine aid, to walk circumspectly and watchfully in the world, denying ungodliness and every worldly lust. So may he who saved us empower us as his people to live holy lives. May we as a people flee the allurements of sexual sin, and may we together find lasting pleasure, lasting joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us and who has redeemed us for himself. So may we resist, may we resist the temptation to yield to our sexual sinful desires. And may we live as is proper among the saints for the sake of the gospel in our community and for the glory of the holy God who has called us out of sin and into holiness through Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you so aware of our sinfulness. Lord, all of us stand condemned as we consider the ways we've conducted ourselves and have conducted our bodies. But Lord, we are grateful that because of Jesus, you save us out of our sin, that you sanctify us, that you forgive us, Lord, that your wrath has been, been diverted onto Christ in our place as our substitute. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that for those of us who are in Christ, you would help us to live holy lives, Lord, even in terms of our sexuality. Lord, I pray for those who are convicted, for those who have heard the warning of this text this morning, I pray that you would not produce worldly sorrow in their heart, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work 
And Lord, that even though we fail and struggle, that we as a community of saints here at Redemption Church would be welcoming to one another in our struggles. Lord, that it would be normal among us to confess our sin. And Lord, that we would look to Jesus together for hope, for strength, and for forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would work now as we respond to your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.